0: The Little Written Podcast. Conversations with Writers.
1: In this episode, I talk to playwright Dan Rabellato on his role as a lead writer on the massive new BBC Radio 4 serialisation of Émile Zola's Rougon macquart novels, Blood, Sex and Money. If you're intending to listen to the serial, and you definitely should, be warned that the last 10 minutes of our conversation contain some slightly spoilerish details, mainly about episode 9. Dan does give a spoiler warning, though, when he's talking about it. So if you're worried, listen out for that and act accordingly. Here's the interview. My name's Dan Rabellato, and I'm a playwright. Today we're going to talk about your big project on Radio 4. Well, why don't you tell us what it is? What we're doing is we have taken
0: the 20 novels that Emile Zola wrote between 1870 and the mid-1890s, which are generally referred to as the Rougon macquart 20 novels that try to tell the story of French society over the previous generation and we're adapting all of them uh, in 27 episodes. It's about 24 hours of broadcast time for Radio 4 and it's the, the under the title Emile Zola, Blood, Sex and Money.
1: Right, so this is a, a massive project. In... I,
0: I think it's the largest, I'm told it's the largest adaptation the BBC have ever done.
1: Wow, okay. So... How, how on earth did you get involved in this then? Were you, were you instrumental in having the idea for it, or did someone approach you?
0: Yeah, it was a kind of mixture of things, actually. I uh, In my other life, I'm an academic, and um, I'm writing a book on naturalism okay. in late 19th century theatre, and I thought I ought to read some of Zola's novels as background. Um, and the thing is that I... Uh, I knew of these books of course, what I heard about them was that he was basically trying to write realist novels but trying to infuse them with the latest thinking in sociology and biology. And I thought life's too short to read books based on 150 year old science. Um, but I started reading them anyway, as I say, for background. I was kind of blown away by them. And I just thought they were so much more exciting than I had ever thought they would be. So I approached my producer and I said, you know, we ought to do a series. We ought to pitch that we'll do a bunch of these. I think initially I said to like we should do a season. We should do like four of the books. Yeah. And I think probably a couple of glasses of wine later. I said, we should do them all. Um, So she then talked to uh, the drama commissioner uh, for Radio 4, Jeremy Howe, who said, oh, that's interesting. I think in BBC Salford, they are also interested in a Zona season. So we were then put together and the thing kind of snowballed from there.
1: Was there a sense of dread when it all sort of took off that you'd uh, let yourself in for this? <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, it was sort of... It is one of those things where you get the news, they've, they've green lit it, it's going to happen. And you have a moment of elation and a moment of, <laughs> what have I agreed to do? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not the only writer on it, of course. There are, there are actually now three other writers. Um, so, of course, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge, huge project. But, uh, but the, the,
1: the burden is shared. So um, it's a huge adaptation. So where do you get started when you've got twenty novels in front of you? Yeah, and you're the lead writer on this project. Well, I'm
0: uh, just to just to be specific, I'm lead writer on the first season. Okay. Uh, But um, yeah, where do you start? Well, uh, I think there were a couple of things that were really for me that were really important. The first one I think was to say that I kept saying this rather stupid phrase in meetings that we're not just adapting 20 books we're adapting 20 books what I meant by that is the there is a kind of crazy ambition in what Zola set out to do you know in 1869 or whatever it is when he gets this idea he's going to write these books and it does take him 25 years of his life Mm -hmm. Um, and he he genuinely thinks I'm going to try and talk about everything. Yeah. I'm going to try and give you a snapshot of everything that's going on. So one of the things we wanted to do is we didn't want to go just, this is book one, novelization, book two, novel uh, adaptation, book three, adaptation, and so on. We, um, we kind of thought we wanted to create a format that kind of grasped the scale and the ambition of what he was doing. I think the other thing is, obviously, we needed a way through these books yeah. um, and we uh, it, the thing is called Emil Zola Blood, Sex and Money that came from a, uh, a, a big meeting before we got commissioned actually where we tried to get to the heart of what we thought these books were really doing um, and we did kind of boil that down into, in, into those three themes and actually those are the themes of the three seasons so it's 27 episodes three seasons of nine episodes each and the first season is, is thematically organised around blood, the second one around sex, and the third one would be around money.
1: I mean, how many of the books had you read when you saw of? You said you'd read a few. Uh,
0: yeah, no, I think by the time we had that meeting, I'd probably read 17 of them. I think there were three still to go.
1: Did you worry a great deal about translation, about how how the the French had, been, had come across into the English versions and whether you were getting the heart of it?
0: Yeah. Uh, yes, I did a bit. Um, and there are particular some of the novels like one I haven't uh, adapted but La Semoire, um, is written, a great deal of it is written in kind of 19th century working class northern Parisian slang um, and there's certainly one translation I've read that does a terrible, <laughs> terrible job trying to find contemporary uh, equivalents for that. So, so, yeah, for certain things, I think we were very, very struck by the, the peculiar difficulty of these books. One of the things that I would say is that because um, radio, in terms of the writing, uh, obviously a lot of what you're doing is writing dialogue. Zola's actually not a big dialogue writer, mm. he tends to narrate much more than he writes. And very often there'll be a a quite key scene. But he'll sort of just explain what happened rather than actually give you the dialogue. He's not like Dickens, where you can go that this beautiful dialogue and just take it off the page and and, and put it in people's mouths. So to some extent, you're almost always writing new words uh, Mm. for Zola. So to that extent... Uh, you don't worry quite so much, or I didn't worry quite so much about the translation.
1: So is this the French naturalism thing coming in then? Yes. How do you understand French naturalism? Well,
0: (laughs) naturalism as a form of theatre specifically, uh, and specifically in the kind of Zolian version, is absolutely about uh, infusing realism with a scientific view of the world. (laughs) So Zola is, well, he's... He's not consistent, uh, but he seems at some, t- some points to be absolutely a kind of determinist. He says, he seems to think that if you understand, as it were, all the biological facts about somebody and all the social facts about somebody, you know, you have everything you need to know about how they've behaved. Mm-hmm. Because those that's the totality of the forces that produce their behaviour. Um, but I think you can see the novels as... Uh, complementary and in some interesting productive tension with that
1: obviously there's a fairly rich philosophy behind what he was trying to achieve with these novels mm. uh, in terms of as you said the the, the scientific approach to heredity and, and a family passing things through the generations so i was wondering to what extent you were trying to reproduce his vision of what was going into the books and to what extent you were saying, OK, we're not going to worry too much about that. This is what I get from the book and that's how I'm going to put it across.
0: Yeah, it's, that, it's really interesting and I thought a lot about how to do this. Um, I think it would be, it's kind of daft to just go, well, you know, because our understanding of human biology, for example, is so completely different now from the way it was um, in the eighteen. 18- Seventies, uh, that it would seem crazy to start trying to reproduce late nineteenth-century biological theory in a in a twenty-first-century radio drama. But there are some interesting overlaps. So when I first encountered Zola, when I was at university in the late eighties, um, the base, the standard kind of opinion. Is that this idea that science could explain every single, or biological science could explain everything about human behaviour, was generally considered to be laughable. Mm. But in the last sort of 30 years, we've had the rise of neuroscience and so on that actually has exactly the same, exactly the same breezy overconfidence that Zola um, has in his in his more kind of programmatic journalistic statements about what naturalism is. So it seemed to me that this was a real, really interesting opportunity to test some of those ideas, because I think you could look at these books, this is a bit of a dull way of looking at these books, but one way you can look at these books uh, is as as sort of kind of huge thought experiments Mm -hmm. that say, how possible is it to live in a world in which we are determined by forces completely out of our control. How, how possible is it to sort of understand ourselves in that way? Which sounds very abstract, but what that means in terms of the books, I've got the narrator sometimes coming in with a kind of deliberately, it's intended to be a deliberately um, almost kind of crass statement about the kind of biology of what's going on, or the sort of physical chemistry Uh, There's a point in the first uh, episode where two of the characters, we have two young lovers and there's a point where they've kissed for the first time. It's intended to be a very sweet scene and at which point the narrator comes in with a sort of, in the way that I imagine a sort of neuroscientist kind of totally doing the buzzkill of just going, what's going on here is chemicals are being released in the brain and so on. And I suppose the thought is kind of, I want the listener to kind of think, can we actually bring those two things together? Is it? Is it? Does it make sense for us to think of those things in the same way? So, the short answer to the question is, I think these are in dialogue with the ideas, in the same way that Zola's novels are in dialogue with his stated ideas.
1: Uh, the, the narrator was something else I wanted to talk about. Yes. So, the narrator is uh, Adelaide, yeah. who's the sort of matriarch of this line. Yeah. And then, um, so the, the stories really follow her descendants. That's right. Isn't it?
0: That's right. So, these books are generally referred to as the Rugon Makar. And what that means is there are two lines of her family there are the Rugons, the line produced by her marriage to. Monsieur Rougon Mm -hmm. uh, and they are the rich powerful successful ambitious people Um, but then after Rougon dies she has the scandalous affair with basically a smuggler and a pirate uh, called Macar, and that line is uh, are the working class the struggling the broken the damaged uh, Mm -hmm. and um And so those two lines, those two branches of the family, um, make up the whole thing. But yeah, as you say, Adelaide or Aunt Dee Dee is the is the matriarch at the top of it. Narrators are very boring on the radio sometimes, and the reason I say that, which is, and it's a bit of an odd thing to say because there are a lot of narrators on the radio, but it's a kind of it's a really basic, it's very obvious kind of principle in writing something writing dramatic dialogue, that uh, scenes in which people just tell the truth to each other and say exactly what they mean mm-hmm. are really boring. It's really hard to make a scene interesting. If people come in and say, oh, hello, how are you? And say, oh, I'm very well, how are you? I spent a, uh, an interesting day, let me tell you about it. And they say, oh, that's really interesting, would you like me to make you some a cup of tea? And nobody is sort of trying to do anything to each other. But this is what narrators do all the time. Mm. If they're kind of omniscient narrators, they're just saying, you know, in the sleepy town of Plaisance, you know, a couple is, you know, sitting down to a cup of tea. And they're just telling you facts. And that's a bit undramatic. So we were very keen as writers that we wouldn't have an omniscient narrator. Mm -hmm. And the only... So the, uh, we had various options about how to do this. We could have invented a character. But then we thought, actually, maybe we'll, have, we'll just take an existing character for the novel novels and have them tell the story. And it was Aunt Didi that we, uh, we alighted on. And we kind of thought, as the matriarch, she would have an interestingly complicated relationship with the characters. It's a, it involves taking uh, one huge liberty with the books, which is that effectively in the books, she's mad Mm -hmm. and 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 almost catatonic. So there's not a lot of (laughs) speaking and it's not very coherent. So we've made her into a very different kind of figure who's much more articulate and has complicated relationships with the with the stories that she's telling. She's sometimes disgusted by the behaviour of this family that she's sired, she keeps calling them a pack of wolves and so on but then there are points where you think oh I think you may be sneakily quite proud of the depraved successes of, of your family so that became a more interesting dynamic for a narrator
1: mm-hmm. And how, how did the collaboration work with the other writers then? So were you, were you regularly working together or was it you got your episodes and you knew what was in them? We, um
0: well, the way it worked is that we had the allocation from the BBC. The BBC, just before anything else, we knew what episodes we were writing. Okay. We had no idea what stories were being going to be in them, but I always knew I was going to write episode one of the first block, episode two and episode nine, mm-hmm. before I knew anything. My job as lead writer was I had a meeting, a couple of meetings with the writers, in which I knew what the books were that we were going to try and cover in the first... Um, first season, and so uh, I worked out uh, a kind of storyline mm-hmm. that said, you know, so in this episode I think this is where we'll go into His Excellency Eugene Rougon, and then we'll come out of that in the next episode into La Sainte-Noire, and, and try to show what the lines are, and what the sort of thought through through line of thinking from Dee was. Um, and there was a but then I think once we'd done that, once everyone sort of agreed and understood that, we pretty much wrote our own episodes. After we'd all written first drafts, it became clearer that um there were things we had to we had to bring people more into line with each other, particularly about the tone of Dee Dee's narration and so on. But um it's we did, we certainly didn't sit in a room writing together. Mm. No, that didn't happen.
1: No, we, you talked a little bit about, about Zola's objectives, and we talked about the naturalism thing, but another one of Zola's objectives apparently was really a sort of historical document on the second French empire, yeah. uh, which is, I guess, quite an obscure topic for your average, even your average Radio 4 listener. Um, so how do, you, how do you make that relevant then to contemporary audience?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. We it, we had a, a very early meeting where we um, we thought of, we went through all the books, thinking, would it be possible to do the adaptation but set everything in the last thirty years?
1: I wondered about that because that, that did occur to me. When I was listening to it as that would have been a an interesting decision. And I mean, what was? I
0: mean, it was a really interesting exercise because we found basically analogous. Um, uh, Context for every single one of the books.
1: So would you have would you set it in in Britain or
0: would you've kept it as a French setting? I think we'd probably. Uh, I think you would lose the immediacy if you set it in France. So mm-hmm. it would have to have been set in. Okay. Britain. I think what we then ultimately thought was that actually Zola is trying to do something so specific. It seems actually a little bit odd for him to say I'm going to try and diagnose the specific nature of this twenty years of of my of my history and then just kind of say, oh but it all applies to the present, because mm-hmm. that starts to Im- imply that nothing ever changes and, and so on, which is a very unzolian thought. Mm-hmm. But we were very heartened by the thought that um, you know, his his book The Masterpiece, which is set among basically among the Impressionists, you could so easily set that among the young British artists of the nineteen nineties. There are books that are clearly about, you know, the cult of personality and and the pornification of everyday life and that encouraged us to think that these books continue to be meaningful to a contemporary audience. But you're right, it's a really, it's a huge difficulty to get people, first of all, to inform people that there was such a thing as the Second Empire, because mm-hmm. it's not, you know, I don't think it's the thing that's taught in schools very much over here anyway. Um, get people to understand that they're supposed to basically boo and hiss whenever they hear the name Napoleon the Third and and that sort of thing. Our feeling about it was that if you can do that quite lightly mm-hmm. um, and as long as you sort of understand that the effectively the fairly depraved behavior of almost everyone in this saga is not just because they happen to be themselves terrible, terrible people, but they are in a sense um, exemplars of the world around them, and they are um, they, are, they make and are made by a particularly corrupt and decadent society. Um, I think once you get that idea, then actually the context plays its part without you having to worry too much about who exactly is the Minister of the Interior in the 1860s compared to the 1850s and so on, um, which I think would be a rather fruitless.
1: But you did have to do that research all the same.
0: Yeah. Uh yes. I mean it's it, it's a completely fascinating period of French history. I mean the the, the really important thing is um is just understanding that is sort of understanding the Franco-Prussian war because that's the one bit in season 3 we will be doing our version of Le Debacle, which is Zola's novel about the Franco-Prussian war. Mm-hmm. Um the first two seasons both take a run up to that moment. But Stop just at the last minute, and it's only the third season that actually tells that that story. The thing, the reason why that's really interesting and important is, first of all, the Franco-Prussian War continues to be an important force behind the whole way Europe works. But secondly, um, Zola writes all of these novels um, from eighteen seventy to eighteen ninety. Four or five, I think it is, Um, he's writing about the period before 1870, and the thing between them is the Franco-Prussian War. And the Franco-Prussian War is basically, for Zola's generation, this traumatic scar on French culture. So he's he's kind of looking over, uh, it's sort of like, you know, it's sort of like Americans writing about life before Mm 9-11, after 9-11. And that's completely, completely fascinating. Story, and we'll be making a lot more of it in the third season. Mm.
1: The, the, there's quite a lot of humour in your audio version of this. Is that in the original books, or is that something you brought in to amuse yourself? <laughs> the um, audience.
0: Right, it's a, good, it's a good question. Certainly, the tone, the tone is very different. Mm. Uh, if you read The Fortune of the Rugons, uh, which is the first novel in the sequence, quite an early book of Zola's, it's in some ways the book is. I mean, there are great things about it, but it's a little naive in certain ways. Um, but you kind of have to start with it. So it was a really difficult ask, because mm. basically you're saying, here's a book that is not that well known. It's 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 a bit clunky in certain places, but we have to launch the whole 27 episode thing with it. So it seemed to me that humor was one way of really engaging people mm. with with the books. But I suppose what I would say is there are two things. I mean, one is that um, there is right the way through all of the rougon Makar books, there is a there is a, a real strain of satire. He uh, there is a kind of brutal laughter at the the horrific things that people get up to. So the, even though I think Zola would not gen, generally be thought of as a comic novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, there, are, there is a certain kind of comic strain that's satirical. Then the other thing, I think, in the first episode, I don't know whether you pick this up at all, but um, there's, a, whole, there's a, a central part of the story is that basically there has been a kind of Republican left-wing takeover of the town, and all the conservative old guard kind of get together uh, in this sort of terrible kind of, you know, these these old blokes yeah. try and take it over. It's like and I, Dad's
1: Army in reverse. Exactly,
0: good, thank you. Oh, I'm so <laughs> glad you said that. Because I read that and just thinking, this is just like Dad's Army. Um, and in fact, uh, in fact, there's a line which they... Got, we had to cut in the edit the Don't Tell Him Pike line. But I think perhaps we thought that was just going too far. But certainly I kind of thought, well, actually... Uh, the scenes are kind of written very like Dad's Army Um, and the idea was really just to kind of think that's a way of getting people to tune into what is going to be a fairly unfamiliar political debate between Mm. sort of monarchists and republicans in the context of the early French Empire that would be quite difficult to get a, a quick handle on but doing the Dad's Army thing gives you a sense of what the relationships
1: involved are and so, uh, I mean, after you'd written it, because another thing that, that's interesting about the tone is the accents that have been chosen for the characters, because obviously not having it in French, you've got some decisions to make about how yeah. the character's going to be acted. And what's the decision that's been made is sort of, uh, sort of northern Mancunian, am I in the right area there? Yes, we... There's... Uh, see if I can get this right. I think
0: we thought that Paris was Manchester, right? And Plasson, which is the... Um, it's basically Aix en Provence, yeah. that's where Zola came from, uh, would be kind of Yorkshire. I don't know if we're completely consistent about that, but that was the idea. I mean, that, that comes from a number of different things. One is there's, obviously, BBC Salford was one of the big producers of it, and that's where he recorded everything. Uh, so there's a sort of sense in which you want to reflect that area. But I think also we, kind of, we really, really wanted to get away from the kind of classic serial way in which things sometimes are done on the BBC, not always, but sometimes they're done, which turns everything into a kind of RP-ish, slightly chocolate boxy, everything, everyone talking very nicely or talking like I talk, we want to get away from people talking how I talk Um, and, and so I think we actually kind of thought, well, you know one, these books were these books were bestsellers Mm-hmm. They were shocking, you know. They were um, they were despised by huge numbers of people who thought they were the most sort of kind of gutter filth. Mm-hmm. Um, so we kind of wanted them to have at points a kind of roughness about them. Now doesn't. A Manchester accent doesn't mean (laughs) you have instant, instant roughness. Of course, the worst of human society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's not the idea. But we wanted just to kind of displace a bit the idea that that these were just kind of nineteenth-century classic novels. We wanted them to. You know, there's a real decision. So, for example, nobody ever says Monsieur and Mademoiselle Mm. in it. It's all Mister, Mrs, We, if ever there's a name that's um, we, we try to get rid of the names that are uh, that are quite hard to say in English because I think you have that very odd thing that happens in a literary adaptation, where you've got an English person saying, you know, I am just off to my home in the Paca Mansou. Mm-hmm. You go, well, why are you suddenly talking French? Well, you're a French person, so it's, you know there's a, a break that wouldn't actually happen in the French. So we try to make everything sound very English and immediate. Yeah. We try to write the dialogue in a way that is conversational, contemporary and naturalistic without it, obviously without sort of crass um, anachronisms. Yeah, and a snatch
1: of the, the Marseillais in English in the first episode as well.
0: That's right, yeah, yeah, exactly. We kind of thought it would be really odd if they're speaking English to each other to suddenly launch into a French version sure of the Marseillaise
1: So there's a lot of variety in the three episodes that you've written, because the first one is sort of in some ways it's a bit of a historical epic, although yep. a local flavour, because it's around a village, but there is marching across the countryside, there's big Political armies going here, there, and everywhere. Um, The second one is much more psychological, sort of, and and the third, to some extent, is a much more psychological uh, thing where an abbot sort of uses religion and psychology to take over a a small town. So, um, is that something that attracted you to it as well? Yeah, yeah, very much. I mean, I think the even though he's you know
0: written these twenty books and they they do tell a kind of complete story. One of the things that's really significant about the the achievement is actually how different they are they really have a different tone and feel for each book and we want to kind of preserve that not make it not try and make make all our episodes feel identical and so on they have continuities i think there's a shared music set of music resources and obviously glenda jackson has Um, Oh, Dee Yeah, We hadn't
1: even mentioned Glenda Jackson. Well, we can talk about Glenda Jackson. The main
0: part. But we we were quite interested in in making sure that the the differences were stressed. So, yeah, the first one... I mean, the first one is epic. It it became epic because the BBC decided they wanted it to be an hour and a half. Yes. An hour and a half is kind of feature length. It's like a movie uh, and that means your storytelling has to have a kind of scale to it or else it just ends up being one thing happening after another and people lose interest after you know 45 minutes an hour um so it felt it needed to have a bit of flag waving and a bit of armies and a bit of history and 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 various different stories kind of into interweaving i was very attracted having then realized i was going to have to do that to then do uh, something that's much more of a kind of chamber piece as you say the the second episode which is based on the conquest of plasson which is the second no not the second book in the series at all it's about the sixth or seventh i think mm-hmm. but it's a much smaller uh book it's got a much smaller palette it only covers i think a period of a few months maybe a year um, and it's set in a small town and it's really mainly set around a single house um, and i thought that would be a really interesting sudden Change of of style that will itself immediately in those first two episodes give you a sense of the range of what uh, Zola is able to do.
1: Yeah, and you've got a, a proper villain in that episode to uh, play with as well.
0: Yeah, well, Abbe Foja is uh, is a priest, a priest who turns up one day, takes a room in somebody's house, takes over, basically takes over the wife, takes over the house and takes over the town. And in the book, it's kind of troubling. There is actually a, a very... It's a very... What I, I guess at that point would have been a very topical story. Um, he, uh, Zola was a, a was very firmly anti-clerical, very sceptical of religion uh, figure. And I think he would be, we, there would have been some debate going on about the, the, the correct position of the church... Catholic Church in French political life in the 1870s. Mm. So he's, uh, he's telling a story that's, that's actually a quite complicated one to get your head around about exactly why he's there and what he's doing. But in a sense, I think we wanted to just to touch that in as lightly as possible, but make it much more about his, his weird desire to dominate. Yeah. And that's, I think, what we, what we did. So yeah, he, he's, a, he's a villain. He's villain. A play by the, the amazing David Annan, who um, gives up,
1: I think, a chilling performance. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> And then you're, the, the final episode is, uh, I guess, uh, about um, the sort of the horrors that love can drive people to, I guess. My last episode, actually, is the... Uh, it's
0: based on Labetu Men, uh, mm-hmm. the, the human beast. Um, but actually, my episode, we've done that over two episodes. Mm-hmm. I didn't write the first so episode, Eight of, the, of yeah. the week is the first part of La Batumen and my episode's the second La Batumen has as its basic as its central character Jacques Lantier who's a, an, an engine driver he's also a sexual psychopath who whenever he is aroused by a woman wants to kill her mm. it's a really really grim story the the, the the genius idea that Zola has is that he Spends the entire book desperately fighting against these murderous desires because he knows it's terribly wrong mm-hmm. to kill people. But all around him, people are without compunction killing people. Yeah. So he, the psychopath, is the only person who really seems to understand that you shouldn't kill people. But everyone else is doing it, um, and. Uh, So I think, I mean, it's um, that makes it sound very psychological. I think it kind of is, but then he's an engine driver. And I think for Zola, this is his great book about modernity because it's about the kind of, the sort of technological steaming, literally steaming forward progress of um, French society. It has this famously brilliant ending where... um, an engine driver and his engineer get into a fight on a train which is taking soldiers to the front, in fact, to the Franco-Prussian War. Mm-hmm. And they have a kind of bickering fight over a woman that get turns very violent. And eventually, this is a spoiler alert, but they fall fighting out of the engine and they're cut to pieces under the wheels. And the end of the book is this driverless train... Steaming faster and faster and faster with all these soldiers singing away. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course, it's the most brilliant image of a society out of control heading towards uh, disaster. And I tried, tried in the book to get that balance between, as you say, there's a kind of a love story, there's a psychological story about somebody's pathology, but there's also a much bigger story about this technological network that is encompassing the whole of
1: France. Uh, one of the things we mentioned a, a bit there, we've got some big images. We've got this, the, the, the train sort of powering along with no driver. We've got before we had the fighting, the, 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 this war, the takeover of Plasson. So these are big action scenes, which we're doing in a radio series. Yeah. Well, it's come from a novel, of course. So uh, this, this sort of takes us into the whole issue of radio drama. What do you think the strengths and weaknesses are? and Why was that an appropriate medium for this sort of story? Um... You know, the reason why I think this
0: is such a brilliant question is when I first read these books, um, uh, because I've done a few adaptations before and I've written a lot of radio drama, whenever I read any book, there's a little parasitic bit of me that goes, could I do an adaptation of this? And when I read these books, I had two thoughts in quick succession. The first one is these should be done on radio because they're brilliant books people should know them more they're the most amazing stories that's the first thought second one is there's absolutely no way on God's earth you could do these on the radio mm-hmm. because they are so visual so many of so many um, some, they were originally um, serialised you know they were they all of them I think originally appeared in the newspapers um, and he clearly wrote um, he wanted to write a, a chapter that kind of even if you hadn't read the previous one, it sort of stood alone. And he would often, you know, there, there is in La Petition, for example, there's a chapter that is basically a train crash. Mm-hmm. It just tells you how it happens, um, the aftermath and so on. It's a big action sequence, big kind of Hollywood CGI thing. And then in Nana, there's the most fantastic, I think, penultimate chapter, I think it is, is uh, set at a horse race, mm-hmm. and you get this amazing rise and fall again very very visual he doesn't write much dialogue as i said and that's what why i kind of thought you can't do it now of course i am doing it but um but i think what it means is that you need to kind of work really hard to find the way through that isn't just visual Mm. radio i think is sort of visual in a certain way it's not just i think you quickly realize as a writer that if you just have people sitting in a room talking that can be quite boring in fact it's a really exciting thing if you have a sort of big action sequence but i think the kind of the sort of the way people's a lot of people's imaginations work is it's very hard just through sound effects to get a very very complicated um, visual action story the yeah. idea. because eventually yeah, it just turns into a lot of banging and crashing exactly exactly. and I think you just kind of aquaplane off it a bit you end up sort of going I've sort of lost any sense of the detail of what's going on here so I think whenever you have something like a big like the train crash when you have something like that you need to kind of work out a very particular way in which you're going to tell that so that it feels not just like it's not just like you've taken the soundtrack, to soundtrack of a Hollywood movie, right. but actually you're still kind of narrating a
1: story. And you've there got is to find the, the character's way through the action sequence. So.
0: Yeah, that's right. And, and the narrator's attitude to it. And, and then there are kind of sound motifs. I mean, writing for audio, I think you do have to kind of think not just in terms of kind of realistic sound effects. You know, that somebody's at the door, so you'll hear i mean it's going to be more interesting if you can kind of think about ways in which some of your key sound ideas become motifs that run through other things so in 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 that last episode we we have the sound of trains in it a lot mm-hmm. but it's not all not just in scenes where there are trains it's sometimes a way of actually we sort of had this idea that sometimes a scene crashes into another scene the same where steam train sort thunders through a station and so it's using kind of those motifs as well there's a ticking of a fob watch that we use quite a lot mm-hmm. there are the voices of his sort of pathology and so on, those things kind of layer up through it and well if it works then you've got something that actually continues to be quite kind of precisely defined um, while it's still having a, a kind of it's still populating your imagination in a visual way
1: uh, when can people hear
0: these uh, episodes then they the first episode goes out 21st november 2 30 i think on radio 4 and then there will be another episode every day uh, usually mid-afternoon uh, for the next for the following eight days it's a
1: pretty intense intense listening experience it is going to be, it's going to be an intense, you can hear a lot of Zola. Great. Well, thank you very much uh, for talking to me. I really thank appreciate you. it. You can follow Dan on Twitter at Dan Rebellato. Follow me, Thomas Oleron Evans, at Mathistopheles. And the Little Written podcast at Little Written. More links relevant for this episode can be found at www.littlewritten.co.uk.